Psalm 19, as we make our way through the Psalms, um, and Paul read the text this earlier, but I want to just go ahead and read through the whole thing if you want to read along with me together. And there's a lot of cross-references as usual, so you can kind of be looking at those on the screen, and when we uh, kind of move through it, you'll be hopefully getting closer there quicker, and I apologize for that, but yet I don't. Um, Anyway, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's rising from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Well, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much more than fine gold, or than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And moreover, by them your servant is warned, And in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors and cleanse me from secret faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The testimony of creation... I don't know how many of you guys have seen those pictures from uh, the Hubble telescope these days. I don't know if you, know, you look on YouTube and you see all the, the pillars. I can't even think of all their names. But these days you can look at these, the vast uh, sky of stars. Now with the naked eye, we can't really see necessarily all that there is out there, obviously. You know, and we think of that uh, um, looking up at the night sky. And uh, the Lord just says, this is a testimony. This declares my glory, he said. And by the heavens, there, the word is, uh, also means the stars and the sun, but also the clouds in the sky when he talks about the heavens. And looking at the stars makes me curious about space and distance. I think it makes all of us. And when you think of before technology, just let's go back, well, you have to go back 130 years now. But uh, there was nothing like that. Now, they had telescopes, and um, I didn't look that up, but when... Uh, Copernicus and those guys were uh, uh, starting to study the heavens. But prior to that, it was just the naked eye. And that's uh, what we had to look at this. And that's what David had when he looked at this. And uh, he says, this declares God's glory. And what about that declares his glory? You know, it just makes us curious for one and makes us realize for another that we cannot count, even with the naked eye, there's no way that we can count all these stars. It's beyond our comprehension. Something bigger than us something much greater than us, something bigger than our earth. And, um, you know, it's the universe, but it's something bigger than our galaxy. And uh, it makes it makes us aware of something, or that there's something much, much greater than we are out there. 
And that begins to declare God's glory because we begin to see that there's a need for a creator. And I wanted to show those images um, and all for you, but the, uh, it's one of those things, if you've seen them, if you haven't, you can go to YouTube and look at the Hubble telescope. Um, this, the images that you'll see are, are colored and all, but usually, uh, or actually, they're, they're gray. They're not really colored, but they use these, this uh, thing called a long split spectrograph, and it kind of tells what kind of gases and elements are in these, in these stars and the clouds and so forth, and it adds color to that. But if you were to just look through the scope and see those, they would just be grayish and white. Um, what's interesting to me is that God knew that it wasn't going to be until the last couple of decades that we could use this technology to see, and it just is more vast than it even is to the, the naked eye. And uh, seeing these deep space images, and um, God told Daniel that uh, when, you know, at the end of times, knowledge would increase and technology would grow exponentially. And the same is true for deep sea creatures. Yeah, now they can last, since the 1960s, they can go into the depths of the Mariana Trench and you get down there and you see these crazy creatures that you just would never see otherwise, unless one washes up on shore occasionally, you know. But um, that type of thing has only been around for the last few decades that we can look at these things. And uh, still finding all sorts of things in the depths of the oceans. Last December they launched what's called the James Webb Telescope. That's going to orbit at about just under 100 miles. Is it 100 miles? Yes, I think so, from Earth. It's a real deep orbit, and it's going to be much larger and be able to, it's going to be about 100 times as powerful as the Hubble Telescope. And... Uh, it's going to observe in the infrared spectrum so it can see through all the clouds because when you start looking that deep into space, there's so many clouds of gases and so much in space that you can only see so far with the Hubble and you start getting you know, interference. Well, now this is going to start looking even deeper. Um, the scientific community is looking for clues to the age of the universe, what they call the expanding universe. And they believe that it will be able to measure that and find the origins of everything. Now, keep in mind, this is all measurable science. Light waves have, you know, length. They can be measured. You can bend light with a magnet. You, the light bends around stars, and that's how they find movement in stars, thinking that there's a, a planet going around them. And this is all mathematics. This is all science. This is all provable. This is all uh, measurable. And regardless of their theories... Um, so does this negate the glory of God because they can measure these things? Um, or does it disprove the Bible when God created in six days all these things, when it takes millions or billions of years for light to travel from these measurable distances to get to earth? You know, I'm not really worried, but um, they're still looking. And we have the word. We already know. Uh, God's given us his word, and, he's, and we'll see this morning he's proven it to us. Um, but they're still looking. And, and I'm, you know, we have uh, the word that says every false god that has been worshipped, whether it's by these particular atheists, if you will, or scientists, 
and not all are atheists. There are some believing scientists and uh, um, astrophysicists that are believers that can prove and and, uh, show that there's a very, very good possibility that's a six-day through physics. They don't need to to follow the other other bit. But the Word is the ultimate authority. Um, You know, God's Word, when His glory is revealed, it says He will cause... Well, I didn't even say he'll cause it. The earth, when it, before his glory, and the heavens will flee away. It says there will be no place found for them before God's glory. You know, maybe God will use these telescopes to add to the testimony of his glory. It does for me. I look at these images and I'm totally blown away. I, I just his vast power to create and hold all these things together. And um, he is an infinite creator. He cannot be measured. He cannot be contained. Or maybe God will allow these telescopes for deception. Jesus said in Luke 21, there's going to be great signs in the heavens before the end. In Matthew 24, there's going to arise false Christs and false prophets that will show great signs and great wonders to deceive, if it possible, the very elect. Not that the very elect are prone to deception, but it kind of puts the onus on us, doesn't it? You know, if it's possible that the very elect could be deceived, well, don't let that be possible. <laughs> you know, it's up to us to, to see to it that we are rooted and grounded in God's word. Let's look at uh, Colossians 2, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 8. Paul starts talking about this and actually names some of the possibilities of uh, how it's going to take place. In Colossians 2, 1 through 8, For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of the understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. And it says here, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words or mathematics or telescopes. Um, You know, uh, lest anyone should deceive you uh, with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted built up in him and established and in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, beware lest anybody cheat you through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Well, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Now, when he says... The basic principles, maybe you got a King James that says the rudimentary. And that word in the, the, the rudiments of the world, the first thing that is, is it says it's the, the very first thing, the very first principle, the very beginnings of something, the rudiments, the foundations of it. Uh, for example, the letters of the alphabet, the ABCs, that's where you start the rudimentary for speak and language and so forth. Um, the elements, that word also means, from which all things have come, the elements, the material causes of the universe is what that word also means the heavenly bodies as parts of the heavens and finally uh, 
the definition, the elements, the rudiments, the primary and fundamental principles of any art, science, or discipline of mathematics and geometry. Paul's talking about not allowing those who would take away from who Christ is and take away from the very beginnings of when you met the Lord and when he drew you close to him, that don't let any of these things draw you away. Well, to be put in the context of Colossians, you know, this verse really is about Paul being concerned about the legalism that's being imposed and, um, on these believers to leave Christ and to go after rituals and observances and philosophies and all that. And it says based on the traditions of men and these rudimentary things. There's always going to be a religion attached. There's always going to be a deception attached when they try and use these things to take you away. But notice verse 3. It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and all the treasures of knowledge. And so we see that uh, there's nothing that's going to take away from who Christ is that you find in the universe. You know, he created the universe. That's where we begin. Genesis 1, verse 1. And so back to Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, you know, God is, it is the heavens that declare his glory. Now, declare literally means to count or number or measure. And so when he can cover the heavens with the span of his hand, when you can finally get that measurement from your James Webb or from your Hubble to find the edge of the universe, then I'll talk to you about how, God big, it, how big God is. You know, once you get that, get back to me and let me know. But, uh, you know, they're setting it up. They shot it up in December. They're going to, it's not going to happen. Every time they point something at the darkest spot and they find a way to measure to the deepest space, they find more, more than they can understand. And then take that and you wrap it around and point it 360 degrees and, and uh, north and south, east and west. And, and uh, it's infinite. God's glory is infinite. So the heavens declare what it means is God is beyond measure, is what he's saying. The heavens measure, number, count, and God is beyond. It says his handiwork. The word handiwork is deeds or work or undertaking. The glory of the Lord is first mentioned in Exodus 16 when Israel was led through the desert, if you recall. God showed his glory by providing supernaturally for them. And he also would say it beforehand. If you remember, just uh, one example, when they were hungry and they were complaining, and Moses said, I don't know what to do with these people. The Lord says, tomorrow they'll have food. Well, he brought quail. But he told them, tomorrow I'm going to bring food. That was a prophecy, and a prophecy fulfilled, and the miracle that he changed the way things are. Now, I don't know that, you know, um, that we can understand what that was. But when they saw it, they knew it was God's hand. They gave him glory for it. And it came in and they were fed to the point, it says, where they were sick of it. it they couldn't, they were just sick of, had too much. Um, God showed his glory by providing supernaturally for them and prophesying ahead of time. And now God also showed his glory to them at Mount Sinai. You remember when Moses went up on the mountain, God settled on that mountain in a cloud and it says it, it, it looked to their eyes like it was a devouring fire. Not something that's just kind of light up there, but it was a fire that was devouring. And, um, you know, that's what it says it looked like to their eyes. When Moses came down, his face shone. 
It shines so much they feared greatly and they said, cover, cover your face. You know, we can't, we can't look at this. Let's look at Corinthians. Um, Paul describes this a little bit. In 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. And we're going to get more into this a little bit later, but there's a covenant with Israel, but there's a new covenant with our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's talking about it, um, you know, the Spirit is so much more than the letter of the law. And so he's comparing the two, but also describing what was going on. In verse 7, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, if that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory passed away, well, how will the ministry of the Spirit now not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, and the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, for even that was, uh, for even what was made glorious had no glory in it. This respect, because of the glory that excels it, it goes beyond. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And so, um, up to eighteen. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains uh, unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. And we know how Israel is blinded in part, and the Jews are blinded in part. Many do get saved. But when they're looking to the law, they're still blinded. And so nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That glory is in us. Um, Paul describes this, speaking of that ministry of death through the Old Testament law. It was unapproachable. It caused great fear. It brought death if they got close to it. And yet now we have this new covenant and this spirit, this glory, the glory given to Jesus dwells in us. And uh, we're being transformed into his image. Now thinking of Psalm and the heavens and the glory that David's talking about, what I know for myself is I have eyes, I can see, and there's more stars than I can count. I have ears, and there's songs and sounds and, and uh, speech that is beyond my comprehension. I can't figure out and, uh, how wonderful it is. And I wonder at the vast knowledge and information from biology, the smallest cells working in how they work and, and all. And I have you know, respect for that. And, and I see that there's creation there. I see that there's a provision there. I'm not a scholar, but I like to see how things fit together. I like to see how they work. And I consider those images from the Hubble, thinking of that glory. If you, let's say you take two BBs, or three BBs, and you hold them together out here, that's about maybe what your eyes can see. And take that and wrap that all around your whole part, and you see that's how vast that is. Now you take the Hubble, 
and you look beyond what you normally can see and you go out to the wall and you hold how many BBs are there and how many spaces between the BBs in that entire space. Now go beyond that out to the, what they're going to put up the James Webb and you go way out as far as they can, 100 times more than the Hubble, and you put those BBs together, how many vast amounts. It's innumerable. That's the glory of God. And I know there's a sun, he goes on to say. This is what we see. This is simple observation. This is what he says declares God's glory. I know there's a sun from which the earth has life. We have air to breathe. We, it gives us food. Uh, God gives us food, but he uses the sun to cause this. It gives glory to him. To be able to eat, to have every need for our bodies. Well, we call this provision, right? Well, where there's provision, there's a provider. And it just points to the Lord and gives glory to him. You know, we have these bodies with a mind and a soul and a spirit and for this life, but he puts in us also this desire for eternity. We know that there's got to be more beyond death. We have this inescapable knowledge of the fact that you just don't, as persons, as a soul, as human beings, it just doesn't end with the, with all that we have, with the love that we have for, for family. And uh, there's we just have that built inside of us that we know that there's more than what is in this physical realm. And that gives us a great deal of hope. Um, that kind of brings us to First um, Corinthians. If you go back just a page or two, just chapter 15, and I'll do uh, read from uh, 35 to 49. It says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Well, foolish one, what do you sow is not made alive unless it dies. You put the seed in the ground, it has to die, and then it germinates. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases to each seed its own body. Well, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh, men, animals, and other of the birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one is the glory of and the glory of the terrestrial one is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, a glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also in the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor and raised in glory. Praise the Lord. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a living spirit, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. In other words, we're born, born of uh, water, and, and, uh, and so then the spiritual comes. The Lord gives us that at birth. He puts that in us. Um, the first man is made of earth. And made of dust, the second man is the Lord from heaven. And that's the second spiritual. That's the Lord Jesus is the, is the second man from the Lord, from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. When we see him, 
we will know him as he is and we'll be like him. And um, so, which kind of brings up another observation. Where does this corruption come from? Uh, Why is there entropy in the universe? Why do atoms hold together but everything flies apart? Why is there decay? Why is there rust? Why is there corruption? Um, By the way of an argument for creation and not evolution. A.E. Wilder Smith, if you haven't seen or heard any of his stuff, he's with the Lord now, but there's, uh, I think, uh, Calvary Chapel Philadelphia uh, has on their website some of his Bible studies. And the one I found very interesting was, because he's a physicist, and he's got, uh, I think, six earned bachelors or whatever the, the, the best degree is you can get. Um, in other words, there's people who don't earn them. They just kind of get given that little you know, recognition. Well, he actually earned them. He's a very, very intelligent man and uh, a physicist. Guys like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and all these other guys, they wouldn't even touch him. They wouldn't let him debate because he'd tear them apart but, uh, or make fools of it. But he would say this. Um, he puts it like this. Organic matter will not coalesce. You know, things aren't going to stick together. That goo that they want to tell us is what kind of started everything. And it won't hold like that without enzymes. That's what it takes to hold organic matter together and let it start developing. And enzymes do not evolve. Enzymes could not have come from rocks and lightning. So here we have, on that level to these guys, the inability. Now, again, I'm not, don't come up to debate me on this because I'm not A.E. Wilder Smith. And you can go look at his stuff. So when it comes to that sort of thing, I'm, I'm just saying what I've, what I've seen. I just like the way that makes sense. Because here's how he puts it. He says, you take a thousand-piece puzzle, and you put it in the box, and you shake that. And that's what the creation is, or what the, what the evolutionary guys going to want to tell you. You keep shaking that, and you can shake it for a billion years if you have to. You might get one piece that's supposed to fit with another piece, finally join up and meet and they will join together. But you're still shaking. So that's going to fly apart there, and they're not going to... That's the enzymes that need to hold together organic matter. So that's the way he puts it. The creation that we have um, doesn't just sit and fall into place, as they would say. It has order. It has purpose. It has evidence of design. Evidence of immeasurable power that holds it all together. And this tells me also that there's a provider, but that he's merciful. And Psalm 136, if you can head that direction, just a few verses. You know, this is a great verse because what do we love more than anything is God's mercy, his mercy towards us. And just nine verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. And oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. And to him alone does great wonders. Who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. And to him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. And to him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever to the sun to rule by day. For his mercy endures forever and for the moon and the stars that rule by night. 
for his mercy endures forever. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. You know, everybody knows what mercy is. It's not getting what we deserve, right? In other words, let's just look at that scientifically. If Jesus were to heal a hand, the withered hand, it was a withered hand. It, it's very possible that it was so withered that it just didn't hang there. No, it was withered possibly visibly. And he heals it. So there pops the hands. That's physically impossible. It's a miracle. Just like creation. It, it's not something that... Why? Well, because his mercy endures forever. You know, it doesn't just happen. And uh, the results of any physics or the results of any biology... It's a supernatural thing for a miracle to happen. And, and yet, uh, it, it shouldn't happen. And yet it does. It's not the correct scientific result. It's supernatural. It's impossible. It's miraculous. And God did it. And Jesus proved he was God because he could do it. And it's impossible for a thing to be done. Like the miracles of the Old Testament. When Jesus would teach, they would glorify God. When he would heal, they would glorify God. But when he began to tell them that he must die and even go to the cross, uh, even though they had seen him do all these miracles, they walked with him and no more, it says. Some did believe, and nevertheless they stayed quiet, John 12. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's, God's glory was shown by miracles, supernatural things, and only God can do. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could only do. Because Elohim is the word used in Genesis 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. That word is Elohim. If you know anything about the, the Hebrew, that word him, or the I am, is plural. Elohim. There is, there is already a mention of the Godhead in the very first uh, verse of the Bible. And so Jesus you know, said that they should know who he is by the things that he did. They, didn't, they doubted him. They, they didn't believe he was who he was. And all that the f- prophecies, the messianic prophecies that he fulfilled and the miracles that he did. Now, the disciples, if you want to look to Luke 9, the disciples did see his glory. And it's this, uh, the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9, verses 26 through 36. No, let's start. I got 26. It might be 28. But for, for who is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when, it comes, when he comes into his own glory yeah, and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, and who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. What is it with these guys? They go to the pray in the Garden of Eden and they fall asleep. And, and here he is in glory with the Father and with uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, and they fall asleep. You know, I'd done the same. I'm not going to pick on those guys. If I'd have been tired, I'm not going to say anything about that. Um, but the, they arose, and they were fully awake, and they saw his glory 
and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were uh, parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he's saying, you know, when you first wake up, that's not a real good time to make decisions. Um, and while he was saying this, though, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of these things they had seen. Now, let's go over to Second Peter Verse one, or chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Now, Peter was there. This is what he saw. And now here's how he writes about it when he's writing his, his letter, um, his epistle. Second Peter, I'm sorry, verse, or chapter 1, and that's 16 through 21. says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables, and I hope that's true for all of you, um, but we made uh, fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the more prophetic word confirmed. In other words, where did it start with these guys? It started with the word of God. And then this confirmed the word of God. The glory, the experience, the miracle, the supernatural comes, but it confirms what was said ahead of time. And you've got to remember that. Uh, it's so easy to be deceived by things that trick our eyes. Until that day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Uh, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And while you're turning to the next page to 1 John 1, that is good for all of us. That is true for all of us. That the Bible is for all of us. You know, we, if you're stuck with anything in the whole world, one thing, you know, make it be the Word of God. And let it be the Word of God now. That's the most important thing in your life. Because that's where we get uh, every aspect of God's nature. Uh, more so than if we see a miracle. More so than if we receive some type of a blessing that, that we can see and feel and touch with our hands. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, well then, it's not from God. First um, John 1 1 through 4, John was there too. And here's what he says. He says, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen which we have heard, we have declared to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I didn't see the Lord, but I believe the witness and the testimony 
of these guys. They saw the Lord. It's out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, there's, there's four Gospels. There's the book of Acts. There's all the disciples that uh, followed the Lord. All the people who saw those that were raised from the dead when Jesus was raised from the dead. All those that saw Lazarus raised from the dead at his word. John describes what he saw, and he also describes what it meant. It's the glory of the Father with the Son. And what does he say? The eternal Son. What does he say? He's from, he's with him, with God, with the Father from the beginning. Three times in John 17, Jesus declared the glory that he had with the Father before the world was and before the foundation of the world. You know, these all show forth the glory of God. Well, who all gets to see the glory of God? Psalm 19, and boy, we're, we're going to be trying to get through these here, but Psalm 19 says, well, day unto day utters speech. Verse 2, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them he has set a tabernacle for the son, which is the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is none hidden for it. Utters speech means it pours out, gushes, bubbles up speech. It utters sayings and promise. Their voice and word has gone out, and it says their line has gone out. That line, same word in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10, is the word precept. And it's basically like a plumb line. You, anybody who's in construction or anybody who thinks about it for a second, you hold the line up with a weight at the bottom of it, it's going to be perfectly straight up and down to the, the center of gravity. And, you know, what do you do with the plumb line in construction or anything? Well, you hold it up next to something to see if it's straight or not. You know, is this building level or not? And if it isn't, well, you've got to knock it loose a little bit and, and put a level on it and get it straight. That's the plumb line. That's the line that has gone out. And he's talking about God's glory and the glory being from the stars and the heavens and all that he created, making him infinite. That's the line you want to hold up against everything else. God is immeasurable. Let's start with that line. Let's start with that precept and show what's crooked, and show what's uneven up against that line. And it's true for our own lives. The Word of God is that plumb line. And that Word of God up against our lives is going to reveal what's crooked. It's going to reveal what's maybe not straight, needs to be leveled out a little bit. You hold that up against a teaching. Hold the Word of God up against a, a anything that's being taught and said out there. Um, see what's crooked. See what doesn't line up. That's the plumb line. And how far? Who gets to all see this? It says every language throughout the whole earth to the end of the world. Everyone, anywhere in the world can see the stars at night and see the sun come up and they have to see that. And have throughout all the time immemorial that you can, every human being sees the stars and sees the sun come up. And everybody can see that order and see that provision that God created. And uh, we exist because he exists and made all this. So this psalm holds true for every human being and the word of God holds true. I like to say there's many stories as there are human beings and every single one of them is different. And yet the word of God applies to every single one the same. That boggles my mind. 
the the poor lady who's in the the rice fields in Bangladesh, the 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 Brazilians, the Canadians, maybe, and the the <laughs> just kidding. If there's any Canadians here, um, everyone has seen the glory of God when they look up and see the stars. Well, let's hey, I'll hand it to Canada. They got some areas up there where there's no city lights for miles and miles and miles, and you'll see the stars. There's a park in northern Michigan where it's a star park. You can go out and uh, you know do it when the moon is new moon and there's no brightness from the moon, and you can look up and see just a blanket with the naked eye. It's glorious. Everyone, everywhere can see that order. So what now is the message that is being declared? Who he is and his glory by what he has made. Let's look at Romans 1, verse 20. This is true today as it has been forever or for all of time. Paul's talking about living by faith, being justified by faith. But also he's talking about God's wrath on those who don't believe. Jesus paid for the sins of every human being throughout time. And um, it's a done deal for everybody. What's not a done deal is whether they believe it and accept it and receive it. And so Paul's talking about God's wrath remains on them because they don't, they're not in Christ. They, they won't receive him. They won't believe who he is. And, they won't, they won't, uh... and so he says... In verse 20, he says, From the since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the word since creation, creation means the act of founding, establishing, building, ordaining, invisible attributes, unseen things. Clearly seeing that word is view from on high. In other words, it's not just seeing, it's you've got the perspective of that. Um, seen thoroughly, clearly perceived. The word understood, perceived with the mind, understood, taken heed to, considered, pondered, is what that means to understand. By the things that were made, the word poema, workmanship. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are his poema, we are his workmanship. His eternal power, everlasting, the ever-existing one, not constrained by time, or in the strength and the ability of his eternal power. And then his Godhead, his divinity. So they're without excuse. Why? Well, verse 21, because although they knew him, they don't want to say that they knew him. The atheists will say that that uh, he never, God doesn't exist. Well, no. God says, you know that he exists. And uh, it says they knew him. And they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and they professed to be wise, and so forth. But why did they get there? Back in verse 18, why is God's wrath being revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, for one thing, they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. It's one thing to be a sinner. It's another thing to suppress the truth about your sin and to, to you know, 
just suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. And so Psalm 33, verses 4 through 9, if you don't want to turn there, I'll, I'll read it. It says, For the word of God is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. This brings us to the word of the Lord. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14, the word of God. The first thing it says is it's the law. That law includes the mosaic, prophetic, and messianic teachings of the Bible. What the psalmists call the precepts. In it's the first thing about the law is it says it's perfect. Well, that means complete. It's whole. It's entire. It's unimpaired. It has integrity. You don't need to add anything to it. In fact, what did the Lord say? Whoever adds to these things, he will add the the uh, judgments that are in these things, the plagues that are in these things. There's no need of Book of Mormon. There's no need for a watchtower. There's no need for Dianetics. There's no need for positive thinking. And there's no need for anything else. The Word stands alone. God's Word stands alone. What is it able to do without any inside help? Or, I'm sorry, without any outside help? Um, Well, it converts the soul. The law is perfect. Converting the soul, turning, returning, bring back, restore. Jesus said about John the Baptist, you know, that... uh, he turned men from their sins, turned them towards repentance, converting. In Acts, Peter and Stephen and Paul preached Jesus from the Old Testament prophecies, which led to many turning in repentance. And they turned to Christ, turning away from their deeds. In Second Timothy, we can go there if you like. It's Second uh, Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17. What is it that turns a person. Well, one thing is recognizing God through creation. Another thing is recognizing that we don't live up to it, that we're sinners. And verses uh, 10 through 17 says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, and persecutions I endured, and out of, them, all the, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, that turning, that holding that plumb line up and seeing what's, what's uh, crooked, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good word. Paul writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor, and um, encouraging him to remember 
Remember your, your grandma and your mom used to take you through the scriptures. Remember those scriptures. Remember that's where things are going to happen that cause change in people's hearts and minds. By the word, uh, but, I should say the word must be received. If you just glance to the next chapter in, in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you therefore before God and Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering, though, and teaching, though. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You know, but you be watchful in all these things and endure those afflictions and do your ministry. They get turned away. The Word of God is going to turn people to the truth, but there's a willingness, there's a responsibility for the person who hears the Word of God. You can't just throw it out over a loudspeaker and, and all. He says it's going to do the work that he intended it to do. The, the Lord says, my Word goes forth, and it'll accomplish to the ends of the world what I've been, had for, or intended for it to accomplish. It's going to do what it's been given to do. But those that refuse, those that turn away from the truth, and what is it? Why? Because they love their unrighteousness. They love their sin. They'd rather do the things that make them feel good. And uh, even though it's temporary and it usually brings more pain than it does you know, pleasure in the end. But uh, it, there needs to be a response. You know, Jesus said that. You know, this, my kingdom is out of this world. And a lot of people quit walking with him from there. Many that were fed the bread and the fish and then followed him. And then they found out that his road was narrow. They walked no more. He says, you followed me because you saw food, not because you believe in who I am. And uh, that you got f fed and, and all. So the testimony in verse 7 back in Psalm 19. The word testimony is basically a witness. And it says that it's sure, firm support, faithful, lasting. Second Peter 1.19 says we saw earlier that Jesus is the prophetic word confirmed. The more sure, firm, and lasting rather than these cunningly devised fables. But what's the result for the testimony from what is sure? It says making wise, becoming wise and acting wisely. And it's interesting that the Proverbs say wisdom was there at creation. You know, um, what, uh, what's the result? Making wise? Making wise who? Well, I know what I was. Very simple, very naive, very foolish. I didn't care about anything. You could, I, the, word, the word simple there simply means naive, foolish, and open-minded. And you know what open-minded means? That you can just throw anything in there that you want, and anything you put in there is probably going to fall out besides once you do put it in there. Open-minded, in and out. Um, in verse 8, the statutes. The word there in Psalm 19, verse 8, for statutes is, um, I can't pronounce it, but it's your... Your, uh, lec or your um, concordance H6490, if you want to write it down. But what's interesting about this word, it means precept. It's not the same as what we'll see later for the word precept, but it's only used in Psalms. Nowhere else. And what's interesting about that is, is that when the psalmists are writing about the word of God, 
They're saying all of God's word. Just like when you go to somebody and you're trying to share with them, he says, no, the whole Bible, all of the word is God's word. And that's what the psalmists are saying. And when they write, it's hundreds or many, many times, dozens of times in the psalms that word is used, but nowhere else. Because they're writing these psalms, these songs, and they're trying to say, it's God's word, everybody. It's just the whole bit. That's the that's what is um, what Paul or what uh, David is saying here makes it right. The statutes in verse eight are right, which means straight, upright, correct, level, and pleasing. It's isn't it? Doesn't it please you when you see the right thing done? When you see the right sense made of God's word? When when you see the 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 way things are supposed to be? It's pleasing, and that's what that word means. That plumb line. It's uh, um, rejoicing. Um, the statutes, they're right. Then they cause rejoicing, which means to exalt and make glad the heart, the inner man, the mind, the soul, the understanding. And we got to go to Luke 24 because, you know, there's only one passage, excuse me, that I think of that causes me to rejoice and and um well the whole word of god causes me to rejoice there's many things that cause me to rejoice but but what i'm trying to say is it just makes such a true statement about god's word and the lord jesus christ and his fulfilling of prophecy so this is after he had uh, been crucified and raised from the dead and he appeared to these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And we pick it up in verse 13. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they walked together of all these things, or they talked together of all these things that had happened. And so it was while they were conversing and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are so sad? And he says, well, the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you only a stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, well, what things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people. Now the chief priests and our rulers delivered to him, or delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day and since these things happened. And yes, a certain women of our community who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. And they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, O slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures and the things concerning him. The Bible speaks of Jesus. Didn't he say, all of the scriptures testify of him. And so when they drew near the village where they're going, and he indicated that he would go no further, um, or that he was going to continue on, I should say, 
they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went to stay with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, and he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, gave it to them, that their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us as he talked to us? You know, what makes your heart burn? Verse 8 in Psalms, the commandments, it says they're pure, clear, sincere, and clean. What's the result of pure commandments? Well, it opens our eyes. It says, enlightening the eyes. That word is shine, brighten up. You're going to see things much more clearly in the word of God. 1 John 5, verse 3 is, um, you know, interesting, to say the least. Verse, it says, um, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, begot also loves him <clears throat> who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. But notice this, for this is the love of God, that we can keep his commandments. And look at this. They're not burdensome, it says. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And he, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, not burdensome. All these heavy commandments that, you know, when you think of before you got saved and you think about the Ten Commandments, I can't do all that. You know, that's too heavy. You know, do this, don't do that. But when we're born of God, all of a sudden, you know, why steal? You know, when we're heirs to the kingdom of heaven, why lie when we know all truth? Why cheat when we've already won? Why, you know, we've overcome all these things. The Ten Commandments are just already here for us because here we are. We're believers. We've been born again. We've been made new. You know, um, it's the it's the hope that we have to shed these mortal coils, to put off these bodies that continuously, <clears throat> you know, drag on us the flesh that we wake up with every morning, and that, as Paul says, we have to take up our cross because we got to put our our will, ourself, to death, and pick up and walk after Him, just like the Lord did. Back in Psalm 19, verse nine, the fear of the Lord. It's that fear, that awesome terror, respect, reverence with piety. It's a fear that makes you want to sit up straight kind of thing, you know, in, in figuratively speaking. And what does it do? Or what is it, first of all, the fear of the Lord? Well, first of all, it's clean, pure, ceremonially, physically, and morally, it's clean, that fear of the Lord. And not only that, it's enduring forever. It stands, it remains, it's not moving. It's set, it abides steadfast, established, in perpetuity, forever, it says, enduring. It's set like that forever, from ancient past to forever, future, continuous. In verse 9, his judgments, that justice that everybody's looking for today, that justice, decided litigation is the word, the seat of judgment. In other words, God's the judge. In verse 9, his judgments are what? Well, they're true. It's good to have a good judge. I mean, right now we've got some very interesting things that are going to affect every one of us coming before the Supreme Court. 
And again, I can't help but want to quote David Hawking when he says to the Supreme Court, you're not. Why? Well, because God is the Supreme Court. Um, I don't care if you got nine guys. You probably wouldn't get any better if you had hundreds. Um, yeah, so we know a good judgment when it comes down. They might be interpreting the Constitution and interpreting laws, but there's such a, a bias across all of this. We know that how political it's always been. But God's judgments, first of all, they're true. And as a result, they're firm, they're faithful, they're reliable, and continually so, they're stable. Righteous, his judgments are righteous, just and right. And it says righteous altogether. With truth and righteousness, they're together, united. They're, they're alike, is what it says. What's the conclusion in Psalm 19, verse 10? What's the reward? It says, it's desire, and it's pleasurable. It's delightful, desirable. And what Jesus would say is, man does not live by bread alone. The word of God's desirable to us. Like the guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them because they saw that it was him. And, um, you know, he says it's greater than gold. You know, what, what's gold? Well, first of all, it's really heavy. You've got to spend some of it to build something you can drag it around in. Um, it's thieves are ready to take it. It's a snare because when the world is cranked up and you can have anything you want, well, generally what you want is something you probably shouldn't want when you've got that much. God can make many believers as wealthy as he sees fit, and he'll give them the grace to, to live like that and uh, be able to, to, to honor him with that, to glorify him with that. And that uh, says in James, you know, be, don't, don't keep it to yourself necessarily. Be generous is what he says to the, those that are wealthy and who are, are uh, persecuting the poor and being showed uh, undue favor just because of their wealth in the book of James. You know, it's got worries, it's got cares. Gold does. It fades away. And ultimately, you cannot take it with you. Somebody else is going to enjoy it after you're gone. So, you know, as Solomon said in his wisdom. Now compare that to God's word. We just went through the list. It's perfect, complete. It's sure, making us wise. It's right, rejoicing our hearts. It's pure, making it easy for us to see things. It's clean, it's going to endure forever. It's true, you're not being lied to in the Bible. It's righteous, and with, together with truth, you can trust it. And he goes on to say it's sweeter than honey, and that just is a pleasant, pleasant thing. Psalm 138, verse 2, um, just to read it, you know, I'll praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. And it says, I will worship to your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above your name. Why would the Lord put the word, his word, above even his name? Well, his name, the existing one, Elohim, Jehovah, creator, what we saw in Romans 1, we know what to call him. You know, he's the existing one, the I am that I am. And he puts his word above all of that. You know, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator. He puts his word above all that. And why? Well, it says because of his loving kindness, his mercy towards us. 
He wants us to know his loving kindness, not just what to call him. He wants us to know that he's our Savior and our Redeemer and, and not just what his name is. And that loving kindness and that mercy will never end. That's how much he loves us. That's, how much, that's why his word is so much above his name and why he establishes that so that we're looking to know him, not just know what to call him, not just show up for religion and say the right words, but to know him. And um, Psalm 19, the final 11 through 14, what's the application of all of this? Well, David takes this all to heart. It says, uh, notice in verse 12, it says, you know, who can understand his errors? In other words, which one of us really knows our errors deep and down in our heart? The heart's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And so David's saying that, you know, I see all of these things, the glory of God. I see the glorious truth in his word. And I don't even know my own errors. Who can see their own errors? And, you know, do you ever have a hard time trying to figure out why you keep stumbling? Or why it is that the same old bad thoughts pop into your head? Well, God knows the concealed sin. And he knows how to cleanse it. He says, all we have really is a plea for his mercy and a cry out for his help. In verse 13, so he says, keep back. In other words, hold, restrain, keep back and keep in check. Spare me from it. Basically, David, spare me, Lord, from presumptuous sin. Presumptuous is arrogant, proud, insolent. It's pride. Lord, hold me back, please, from pride. And don't let it have dominion over me. That's rule and reign. What's, what's ruling and reigning in your heart? And, you know, keep me upright. Keep me complete, finished and whole, and entire, and uh, to be there through and through to the end. And keep me innocent. And that's that same word as cleanse back in verse 12. Notice this, and from the great transgression. And then when you break that down in the, in the word study, that great means strong and many, numerous, enough, <laughs> enough's enough, ample. And that word transgression is outright rebellion. So the great transgression is what? You know, you just don't care. You're just outright in rebellion even though you know God exists and you just suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You know that you're a sinner and you say, I'm going to sin all the more. You do, want not, you do not want anything to do with God. That's rebellion. Rebellion is knowing what you're supposed to do and not doing it. You know, and he calls that sin. Um, so not only that in verse 14, it's what he meditates on. It's what he muses about. It's what's in his heart. And that word redeemer is kinsman, the avenger, or the one who has the, the, takes, the avenge, takes the vengeance upon himself, pays that vengeance that's due on you, that ransom. Redeemer simply means the payer of ransom. So David, talking about God's glory, all his creation, all his handiwork, God's word, all his precepts, prophecy, and promises, causing David to confess his faults and desire purity, right? And to keep, be, Lord, keep me back from these sins. You know, don't let me be ruled by it. Let me be blameless, Lord. Let me be innocent. And the bottom line is, look at the very tail end of it. All he wants is to be accepted, acceptable in God's sight. 
God, please accept me, right? So knowing all this, God has to be his strength, he says. And only God can be his redeemer. If you want to turn to Hebrews 1, God's glory, God's word, for us, we find that in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, who at various times and in various ways spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, we saw that, who being the brightness of his glory, we saw that, an express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, and when he had to, by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is glorified on high. And if you go next to Ephesians, our last passage today, and we'll do a few things there in, in chapter 1, uh, 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In heavenly places. Just as he, uh, in heavenly places, uh, in Christ, if we're in him, and because we're in him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blame, before him in love, acceptable. Verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We've not only been accepted, but we're in, we're locked in. We have the seal. We have the Holy Spirit. And nothing's going to take that from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And just in the next uh, chapter, verses 4 through 8, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, with, um, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, because it's by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, because it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. He will return in great glory. The heavens declare his glory. The miracles declare his glory. The word declares his glory. And we are with him and in him in heavenly places and glorious places. And when we go to be with him, you know, we'll see him as he is. And we'll be like him in glory. And when he comes, he's going to come in great glory. You know, for now, I'll enjoy the Hubble pictures and I'll see how vast his creative power is. And that Jesus redeemed me on the cross is what is more powerful. And, you know, it might be fun to look at those pictures, but nothing compares to the glory that we're saved. He'll raise us up at the last. We're washed by, uh, from our sins by his blood because he is our redeemer. He paid that ransom. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we do 
want to just do one simple thing, and that's give you thanks and give you praise and glory. And Lord, we want to know um, your word, and we are grateful that you've written it on our hearts. We always want to be right before you. We want to let your word correct us and be that plumb and iron in our lives. And more than anything, Lord, we want to be acceptable to you. And we're just so thankful that you accept us in Christ Jesus and that we are blameless and innocent in him. To you be all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name.